This is probably one of the more memorable homicide cases that I've worked only because of kind of the twists and turns and the details and the manner and the, and the method of the death. It's rewarding to bring this to a close. It really is. As an investigator, it was, it was very rewarding to, um, to make that arrest and to see some sense of justice served with these guys being locked up where they can't hurt anybody anymore. Five years ago last week, a Flagler County man was beaten to death and set on fire, resulting in a grim homicide investigation that stretched across two counties and put two violent criminals behind bars. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the case of a missing Claremont man whose remains were discovered underneath a slab of concrete in March. Last week, those remains were confirmed to be those of Michael Shaver. He was buried in his backyard, and his wife is considered a suspect, although no charges have been filed. Later, I'll discuss the 2013 slaying of Scott Mulliner, who was kidnapped, beaten, and tortured before being stuffed into the trunk of his car and driven to a remote location in St. Johns County. His killers set the car on fire, so detectives had little evidence to go on. But after piecing together everything they had, two Flagler County men were indicted for murder and later convicted. Joining me for that segment will be two St. John's County Sheriff's detectives who worked the case, as well as former prosecutor Jackie Royce. Coming up, the story of those human remains found under a Claremont fire pit. Can you tell us anything about how those remains got under the fire pit? Do you have anything to say about your husband's remains being found? Nothing to say about your husband's remains being found in your yard. Mert Price, a reporter with WFTV News 9 in Orlando, couldn't get much out of Lori Shaver, the widow of Michael Shaver, a Walt Disney World employee who was declared missing in February of this year. Not long after Shaver was reported missing, authorities obtained a search warrant and dug below a concrete slab on Shaver's property and found some bones and clothes. Last week, those remains were matched to Michael Shaver. Ever since detectives started looking at her as a possible murderer, Lori Shaver has declined to cooperate with authorities, aside from recently providing detectives with a DNA sample. She also hasn't spoken to the media, referring all calls to her attorney. She has not been charged, but the Lake County Sheriff's Office has declared her a suspect. Michael Shaver worked as a monorail mechanic at Walt Disney World in Orlando. He stopped showing up for work in October 2015, and nobody, not even his family, had seen him since then. A friend of the 35-year-old contacted the sheriff's office early this year. News reports stated that both the friend and Shaver's family were worried. 
When authorities arrived at the Shaver home, Lori Shaver told them she also hadn't seen her husband in about two and a half years. She allowed detectives to search the premises, at which time they noticed a new slab of concrete over a fire pit. Not long after that, Lori Shaver clammed up and requested an attorney, according to a story posted by CBS News. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Lori Shaver stopped cooperating once detectives asked to bring a cadaver dog to the house to search the area. Authorities later obtained the search warrant. A cause of death has not been determined. Michael Shaver's sister, Stacy Shaver, lives in Cooperstown, New York. She told the Sentinel earlier this year that she and her family had been trying to contact her brother, but their fears were allayed somewhat because his Facebook page kept getting updated regularly. Michael Shaver and his wife were middle school sweethearts and moved to Central Florida about 10 years ago. They had two children together. A sheriff spokesman told the Sentinel that Lori Shaver has been in a relationship with another man since early 2016, and the two were making wedding plans. I'll keep you posted as this story develops. Coming up, the story of a dangerous love triangle that resulted in a burned-up corpse found near a logging road south of St. Augustine. Joining me in that segment will be St. John's Sheriff Sergeants Gene Tolbert and Jeremy Russell, along with former prosecutor Jackie Royce. The Hammock is an unincorporated community nestled between the Matanzas River to the west and the Atlantic Ocean to the east. It's located just north of Flagler Beach and is less than a 30-minute drive from St. Augustine. It's known for quiet beach life, nature preserves, and the famous Hammock Beach Resort, a spot coveted by golfers and other tourists. On June 13, 2013, in the backyard of a woman's home on Sanchez Avenue, a man was beaten and tortured by a jealous boyfriend and another man. The victim was 54-year-old Edward Mulliner, known by his friends and family as Scott. He was caught up in the middle of a love triangle involving a woman 19 years younger than him, Antoinette Hart. Her other boyfriend was nine years younger than her. His name was Justin Boyles. Years earlier, Hart had also dated Danny Massey, who would later befriend Boyles. In the early morning hours of June 14th, firefighters in St. John's County were called to the scene of a car fire. The car was engulfed in flames near a logging road in rural southwest St. John's County. The smoke was spotted by loggers heading to work that morning. Here is Gene Tolbert, now a sergeant with the St. John's County Sheriff's Office, recalling what was found inside the trunk of the burned-out Cadillac. We did catch a couple of breaks. The patrol deputy who responded, uh, Jason Kroll, he actually did a phenomenal job. And uh, we probably would not have been as successful in this case had it not been for his uh, tenacity and attention. Uh, he's the one who actually recognized the, the remains in the in the vehicle. And I, I got to tell you, Tony, these remains were 
I, I don't want to say microscopic, but they were small. I mean, they were very small pieces of bone, very small pieces of flesh, you know, charred from the fire. And if you if you didn't really look, it would be very easily to just dismiss it as, you know, uh, rubble in the trunk of the vehicle, you know, that would be associated with a typical vehicle fire. Early news reports stated that teeth and hip bones were recovered, but little else. The arrest report even stated that the remains were, quote, badly charred and consistent with remains after a cremation. The prosecutor assigned to the case at the start was Jackie Royce, formerly an assistant state attorney with the 7th Judicial Circuit. Here she is going into more detail about how the remains found inside the burned-out Cadillac were traced to Scott. Um, there was uh, a bridge that you could see under there from the, from the mouth, and later we learned that there was also a pin from, from the victim's toe uh, from a previous medical procedure. There was something else discovered near the car that helped move the investigation forward, one that somehow remained untouched in spite of all the firefighters who had converged on the fire. And, you know, there, there's this thing between cops and firefighters where, you know, cops kind of talk about firefighters being the evidence or eradication crew. And, uh, you know, typically after a fire, they wash away much of the evidence, you know, through their fire suppression means. And in this particular case, they had, you know, just dumped, you know, hundreds of gallons of water onto this fire trying to get it under control and put out. And somehow, some miracle way, um, there was a single footprint in the dirt near where the vehicle was. Uh, that Deputy Crow had recognized, you know, could be of value, and it was of a sketcher shoe. He had kind of pointed that out to everybody, saying, hey, you know, be careful, don't step on this, this might be evidence. And, you know, come to find out down the road, one of the suspects after the case was developed was actually wearing sketcher shoes um, the night of the homicide. So it, it, was, it was kind of cool to see that kind of stuff come together in the case. It didn't take long to trace the car to Scott, and it didn't take long after that, maybe hours, for detectives to pick up on a few potential suspects. Scott was involved with Antoinette Hart, who lived on Sanchez Avenue. The pair lived within walking distance of each other. The couple's relationship wasn't all that conventional. Scott had something Hart wanted, and vice versa. The police has always been uh, that Antoinette was using Scott for um, Xanax. Scott received prescription Xanax and Antoinette would, you know, exchange uh, sexual favors for the drug. And we believe that Antoinette went over earlier that day to get some Xanax, didn't want to deliver on, you know, any kind of physical reciprocation. And Scott became angry and it kind of led to an argument between Antoinette and Scott. The hammock is in Flagler County, so the sheriff's office there already had Justin Boyles on its radar. In fact, Boyles was suspected of committing a crime against Scott a week or so before the murder. Boyles gave a strong indication he didn't want Scott anywhere near his girlfriend. He was suspected of firing at least five bullets towards Scott's home on Hernandez Avenue. Previously, uh, we learned through the investigation that Justin Boyles had actually shot at Scott 
uh, Scott Molner's residence previously, done a drive-by shooting on it about a week or two prior to the murder. And there was a suspicion that Justin had been the suspect in that case, and that was obviously a Flagler County case that the uh, sheriff's office down there was working on. Um, they just lacked evidence in order to, you know, make an arrest in that case because there were no witnesses to the shooting. It was just one of those things where Scott and his dad had been inside the residence down there where they lived in the hammock. And they kind of hear a racing engine. And then next thing you know, you know, there's rounds coming through the side of the house. And then they hear, you know, the same racing engine speeding away. So it, it just kind of went from there and just kind of spun out of control from there. That kind of behavior by Boyles was expected out of him by those who knew him. Boyles' friend, Danny Massey, was similarly unpredictable. Both of them were feared in their neighborhood. The level of fear that so many of the witnesses and so many of the people in the community spoke of at the hands of Justin and Danny, the two defendants in this, it, you know, it was unreal to me um, that they were able to really terrorize the, uh, the community the way that they did and for as long as they did. After a month of investigating, St. John's detectives got first-degree murder charges filed against Justin Boyles and Danny Massey. Once the news broke that both men were charged in the Scott Mulliner murder, another victim of Boyles's violent history came forward. Seven months before the slaying, Boyles knocked out another man with a golf club and nearly strangled him while he was unconscious. During the night of December 21st, 2012, Boyles and the victim were playing pool at a house in Palm Coast. The two men began to argue over, predictably, a woman. The victim turned away, but Boyles grabbed a golf club and swung it at him, striking him in the cheek. The man fell to the floor and Boyles began to choke him, but spared him his life. That victim didn't decide until after Boyles was charged with murder to come forward in that case, likely out of fear of retaliation. But now Boyles was in jail without bail, so the victim reported what had happened to him. A charge of aggravated battery was filed against Boyles. He was sentenced for that charge while awaiting trial for murder. He received five years. Massey, meanwhile, also had a felony charge filed against him while he was in jail. He wound up getting sentenced in 2014 on a charge of possession of a firearm or concealed weapon by a convicted felon. Massey got three years and six months in prison for that charge. Not long before he was scheduled to go to trial, Massey decided to cooperate. Boyles was the one who instigated the violence against Scott Mulliner and also was the one who dished it out the most. Massey, who would later be sentenced to 20 years in prison, agreed to testify against his co-defendant. His testimony wasn't pleasant. Here is St. John's County Sheriff Sergeant Jeremy Russell summing up again what led to Boyles boiling over with aggression on that fateful night. This is one of those situations where the people involved all had needs that were trying to be met. Certainly Antoinette, you know, her need was uh, she's trying to get these prescription pills from Scott. And Scott's need was that he provides the pills and he gets something in return from her, whether that be, you know, sexual favors or, or whatever in exchange for that. And uh, 
I think it's one of those things where Scott and Antoinette were kind of using each other to fulfill those needs, and Antoinette would go back to Justin and kind of bellyache of how Scott was treating her or, or whatever the case may be, and I think it just came to a point where, you know, Justin had had enough of it. On June 13th, 2013, Scott gave Antoinette Hart some pills, but she didn't hold up her end of the arrangement. That upset Scott, who was intoxicated. Hart walked out and headed home on foot. Scott decided he would go after her. He got in his car and drove to Hart's house. Hart remained inside and Scott stayed outside, banging on the door and yelling. Hart decided to call Boyles, who called Massey to join him. Both men showed up and found Scott on the property. They started beating him. They wind up uh, beating Scott for an extended period of time to the point that at some point during the beating, Antoinette and another lady named Cheryl Leggett actually left and went to go get beer and some other things from a local store and came back and the beating was still occurring when they returned with the beer and things. Hart and Leggett were once stepsisters. Hart was Boyles' girlfriend and Leggett was Massey's girlfriend. Leggett would die of cancer a year or two later. During the brutal battery, Scott had pleaded with his attackers to let him go. He agreed to leave Hart alone if they agreed to give him mercy. Boyles was not feeling merciful. And imagine, imagine, you know, Scott is begging to go. I'll leave her alone. Just let me go. You know, okay, I'll never talk to her again. Just let me go. Just let me go. Just let me go. And that was his last hours of life, begging to be let go. Boyles used a couple of torture tools on his victim. There were elements of this situation that were described where Justin had, you know, put out a lit cigarette on the victim's uh, throat or face. I can't remember which one it was, but it was on some part of his body to, in an attempt to kind of torture him. And then at some point, there was an allegation that Justin had actually used a pocket knife or some kind of razor knife to cut off the victim's ear and that Justin had allegedly ate the ear after he cut it off. So really, really gruesome stuff, really kind of sick and twisted uh, situation that occurred in this yard. During his testimony at Boyles' trial, Massey told jurors, quote, I was shocked. I was stunned. I couldn't believe I saw what I just saw. To this day, it isn't known whether Scott Mulliner was clinging to life while on Hart's property or whether his attackers had killed him there. But they decided they weren't going to leave him there. Massey testified that when he picked up Scott and started carrying him toward the car, he was still breathing. He also testified that Boyles used an anvil-like tool to bludgeon Scott before the car was set on fire. Massey drove the suspect's car and followed Boyles, who was driving his Jeep. He took a meandering route to an out-of-the-way place in St. John's, where he decided to burn the car and Scott Mulliner's body. After the fire was set, the pair fled and returned to the hammock. After they got the sense that they were being fingered for the murders, Boyles, Massey, and Hart stayed with friends in the west side of the county in an attempt to lie low. Eventually, 
the law did catch up to Massey and Boyles. Among the witnesses who testified at Boyles' trial was Antoinette Hart. She was someone the victim's family openly wished had been charged in the case, at least as an accessory. Her statements to detectives, testimony before the grand jury, deposition testimony, and trial testimony all included contradictions and half-truths, according to Royce. Here she is explaining to me her thoughts on Hart as a witness. She was very difficult. She um, had inconsistent statements, and of course, as the, the case progressed, it got worse. Um, she went public. Uh, by going public, I mean she was giving interviews. She was staying with one of the defendants, Justin Boyle. She that was her boyfriend, uh, and so she was having contact with him. She was still having contact with his family throughout the case. She was very difficult. She was a very difficult um, witness, and in fact, you know, many people thought she should have also been charged. When she went before the grand jury, Hart testified that Boyles instructed her to kick Scott while he was on the ground. She resisted, but Boyles warned her that if she didn't kick him, she would be next. When she was called to the stand at Boyles' trial, she denied Boyles had told her that. When her grand jury testimony was read back to her, she said she didn't recall saying such a thing. During the trial, prosecutors got Hart to admit she had removed items from the backyard of her home and then dumped them in a fire pit on Boyles' property to be burned. She also admitted to lying to detectives. Hart told jurors she was still in love with Boyles and had hoped to stay with him. Regardless of her perceived lack of honesty, Hart was never charged in connection with Scott Mulliner's murder. Jurors deliberated for eight hours and came back with a guilty verdict for second-degree murder, as opposed to the original charge of first-degree murder. Regardless, the judge in the case sentenced Boyles to life in prison. The sentence he automatically would have received had he been convicted of his original first-degree murder charge. Royce was not the prosecutor at the trial. She resigned from the state attorney's office after getting married and moving to South Florida. But the Boyles case was one she was particularly interested in even after she moved. She was overjoyed when she learned about the verdict. I was on pens and needles, (laughs) of course, um, because I wanted to see the right outcome. And I was so relieved for their family. And, you know, that family was very gracious and was very patient throughout the process. I I was just very relieved that um, that Justin was going to be off the street. After Boyles was sentenced, Royce's former boss, R.J. Larizza, called Boyles a cruel and sadistic individual and added that the community was fortunate to be rid of him. I covered the trial and sentencing for Boyles. His family expressed to me their elation over the verdict and sentencing. Scott's mother, Carol Costello, attended every hearing for both Boyles and Massey, including the hearings for their charges in Flagler County. She told me after Boyles' sentencing that she was pleased with the outcome and pointed out that it was a long time coming. The entire process took nearly three years. Scott's brother, Drew Moliner, 
said he had been living in a fog during those three years between his brother's murder and the sentencing. But on that day, he felt like he was walking on air. Scott's father died before the trial. The news of his son's murder devastated him. Tolbert recalled the conversations he had with the father. That motivated the young detective to kick over every stone he could to solve the case and ensure a conviction. I don't think words can describe, you know, kind of the sense of loss that that he conveyed to us. And I think it was one of those things where everybody knew that this was a very volatile situation, but nobody expected it to go this far, you know. And homicide is tragic under any kind of circumstances. But to know that your loved one died under these circumstances and just the, the torturous nature and just, you know, the cold-blooded brutality of it, I, I can certainly understand why why they would be, you know, even more devastated than, than some typical families would. For Jeremy Russell, this was one of his first major cases after transferring to major cases. He learned a lot from it. I had only been in the unit um, at that time as a detective for probably about, I guess, around maybe five or six months. So this was really one of the the first few homicides that I had had the opportunity to, uh, uh, I guess, be involved in. So... um, I mean, I guess my standpoint um, was probably a lot different than Gene's as far as perspectives and things like that when you're when you're working these cases. But yeah, I mean, it's just uh, you know any situation where a person loses their life is tragic, and uh, you know, I mean, just from from our aspect of it, trying to find those answers and put the pieces of the puzzle together to bring the people responsible to justice, um, you know, is, is kind of what drives us and, and keeps us going every day. So. They're never fun to, to work these kind of cases, but you know, knowing that you're doing a, a service to the victim's family is really what kind of keeps us going. Tolbert said Boyles and Massey seemed to be living a life that would eventually take them to prison. To him, that's their rightful place. He takes comfort knowing they're no longer terrorizing the residents of the hammock. And these are just two really, really bad guys. And society can just do without them. I, to be honest with you, they, they are right where they belong. I think that if they were out um, on the street today, they, they would still be preying on people. And uh, and I, it's, it's tragic that Scott had to lose, lose his life in order to stop that reign of terror. But uh, I'm, I'm sincerely glad that I was a part of it. Um, and that we were able to, uh, to do that, not only for Scott's family, but for that community. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the 2001 murder of a Daytona Beach man, a prominent member of the community who once served on the city's planning board. He was found dead inside his condo. He was beaten with a fire poker. Police arrested two men for that murder. One is serving life in prison, while the other remains on death row. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. 